Atlanta, Georgia, let's fucking go. All right. Feeling it tonight. Let's go. All right, Atlanta, being in Atlanta tonight for me is sort of like birthright. And I'll be talking about that in the second act of the show, but uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that awesome cartoon by Ben Clarkson. I can't believe we got Clay Higgins to do the, the voice acting for that. We're very Amazing. lucky to have him. Yeah, and he's super in high demand now, too. We got him at the right time. Well, I mean, before we kick things off on the show tonight, you know, we, we, so we opened up with a cartoon starring our boy Clay Higgins, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Clay was, he came up with a, uh, a tweet today, very befitting of the character he betrayed in the cartoon today. So let's just, uh, let's just bring that one up real quick. <laughs> so Matt, now Matt, I know, I know you didn't do, uh, you, you didn't do the no, voice acting. No, of course acting. not. That was him. Uh, you, you did Clay, because you, you do your best Clay Higgins, uh, yeah. you know, interpretation of uh, what he came up with today. You millennial leftists who never live one day on the nuclear threat can now reflect upon your woke sky. <laughs> you made quite a non-binary fuss to save the world from intercontinental ballistic tweets. <laughs> I honestly can't wait for him to be president. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought he brought up a good point about the America-Russia NB gap. <laughs> we will all be sleeping under a woke sky tonight. Representative uh, Clay Higgins. Uh, Luke Skywalker. Is that anything? <laughs> I mean, this is a perfect example about, uh, you know... We all know that conservatives have only one joke, but this is a classic example of, uh, once again, getting so fucking mad halfway through the joke that you lose what even the punchline yeah. is supposed to be here. You made a non-binary fuss to save the world from intercontinental ballistic tweets. I think, okay, so he's talking about, one thing they always do is like, when something bad happens in the world, they're like, oh, but Trump had mean tweets. And so I think he's like, he's calling back to that but he was jumping up and down and like shooting his hat with revolvers while writing it. So it, it doesn't really like flow together. But I, I don't know, I get what he's getting at. Uh, yeah, he's saying that uh, all these woke leftist millennials should have spent less time getting mad at people's tweets on the internet and more time uh, strengthening Ukraine's uh, ground defense capabilities. <laughs> like what were you doing this whole time? <laughs> And it is, it is a little dated, he's saying millennials, because like, you, you know, him at age 57 is a millennial. It's on the, <laughs> on the younger side for millennials now. I'm just imagining that like, uh, like, uh, if, if, like the tweet location for this is like, uh, sent from Auschwitz. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I loved it when he made beignets at Auschwitz. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to blame our uh, current events too long here, but I'll just say that the, the tweets have been really good. Yeah. yeah. They, they've, been, they've been really good. And uh, just, just say, like, uh, one other example that I really wanted to bring up today, this is a, a GOP uh, like wonder pollster, Frank Luntz, uh, tweeted this the other day. Innocent Ukrainians are dying by the hundreds every day. I want to bring their voices to the American people. Will any news organization send me to Ukraine or Eastern Europe to conduct focus groups? 
And I just love the idea that like he's gonna be airdropped into Kiev to do a focus group. You know, we, we, we picked um, like a, a broad cross-section of uh, residents of Kiev to ask them this question. How do you feel about being invaded by Russia? We found most of them were strongly opposed. On a scale of one to 10, could you rank the uh, experience of having a tank drive through your front window? <laughs> uh, what well, emotions come to mind when you see a T-72? What's a, wor- what's, a, what's a word that you'd have to come up with right now that describes being in this bomb shelter? But what, what I do like is that, uh, like, you know, obviously, like, uh, here in the American uh, influencer, celebrity, and political wonk community, you know, like, uh, major world events happen, and you have to ask yourself, how can I contribute? How can I help? And it does seem to me like a, a lot of people right now are doing the, the real-life version of the, the famous post, after the revolution, I will be anime appraiser. <laughs> that will be my job in a post-revolutionary world because they're all, they're like, you know, what can I do to help? Well, obviously, due to um, various health issues, I can't, um, you know, be a soldier or fight in a war or anything, but I think I'd be a good general. Because you make me a general right now. Like, that, uh, that, that fucking uh, no-opinion fat ass was just like, he was like, well, I'm pretty sure I could learn to fly a drone pretty quickly. And I, I, I have skills in engineering. It's like, no, you don't. No, they're just posts. <laughs> yeah. But they assume those are transferable skills. So they assume me in the command and control booth, I'm going to be value add relative to me just carrying a gun around. It's like, no, you were literally just raiding people's lunches in the fucking break room. <laughs> yeah. That's your contribution. Yeah, and you can't be Tokyo Rose. Like, not even, <laughs> not even like the majority of the people that read you like you. Like, Tokyo Rose was probably, I don't know who did it, but they probably, like, people liked their column or her radio show before she did it. I've been, uh, I've been enjoying the guys who are, like, America's worst writers, and their names are, like, nachos and fuckery. And they're like, all right, here's some, here's some tips. Uh, here's how to disable a T-80 with a hose. Just like any Ukrainian 17-year-old, just run outside with, like, a can of paint and throw it at a Sukhoi. Attention, you, uh, you corpulent fucksticks in the Russian Air Force. Uh, you wouldn't be flying so uh, hot if you knew that a laser pointer could dis- dis- uh, disarm a MiG jet. <laughs> for any Ukrainians on the ground right now fearing for their lives, don't worry. If you attack Russian forces and also press up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, BA, start, you will have infinite lives. Well, you know, like I said, uh, I, you know, I want to thank you guys all for uh, coming out tonight, despite the fact that, you know, major world events are happening. I mean, you've chosen... Things are occurring. Isn't it yeah. fun? Yeah. You've, you've chosen to come to our comedy show tonight, despite the fact that Elden Ring is now available to play. So, uh, hey, Felix up here, he, yeah. is, he is suffering, okay? Yeah. This I'm, man is your, he is a Christ on the cross. Yeah. Last two days, he has not been able to play this game. Do you, realize, do you realize that, like, I haven't been able to develop my character, who's a combination Dex racist build? <laughs> I, on the way back from this tour, I'm going to insist to uh, the, the crew of the, the flight we take that he board before even active dirty servicemen. Because <laughs> this is the real sacrifice. Well, so, Atlanta, it's wonderful to be with you guys here tonight. This is uh, the second, second day on our tour of the South. We said we'd never do it. 
We said we were going to do it. We said then we... people complained we weren't doing fast enough. So I said, fuck you, we'll never do it, ever. And then they got really sad, so I said, fine, we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, this is a political hotspot now, Georgia. This is yeah, the new blue state, the newest yeah. of the blue states. Congratulations, you guys. I mean, uh, Russia. Don't, no, don't cheer, don't cheer. You were the victims of a color revolution. This is Bra <laughs> This is Brandon country. Yeah. yeah. And you guys have already experienced a Russian invasion before. All right. So Atlanta, Georgia. We're here. We're here on our trip of the south. So for you guys tonight. We thought we would, um, for, your, for your edification, give you sort of a, a tour through the past, present, and future of America, as told through so what we regard as the, 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 several of the, the legendary historical political figures from the state of Georgia. All right? So it's sort of like a, sort of a history lesson. And we're going to begin with James Edward Oglethorpe. There wait, 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 hold on a sec. Let's go back to your state flag for a second. Weak, a second. weak, sad. Not even trying. Wait a minute, I forget. Is Georgia one of the states where they, like, five days ago removed the Confederate flag from it? Okay, oh, that's yeah. why it looks like that. They were just, grab something from clip art, whatever. Oh, yeah, no. I think we can put a gazebo in there where we used to have the Confederate flag. Uh, it says, Little do the Yankees know that's the most racist gazebo in the United States. Wisdom, justice, moderation. Oh, you love moderation. Moderation. Flag. That is I not love, what I, I saw love yesterday. Charging into a fucking gun barrels next to a flag that says moderation on it. I have not seen a lot of moderation since I got here. Louisiana's got a state flag with a pelican cutting yeah. open its insides to feed its young. Yeah. Moderation. Come on. Virginia's got a lady murdering a dude. And her boobs out. Look at this. Look at this nerd up here. He's just, he's just one guy. Just standing there like an asshole. Uh, what are we, you doing with that knife, dude? We believe in moderation in terms of the number of people guarding this gazebo. God, that is that's hilarious. You Awful. know they did it shitty on purpose. Like, oh, you don't want the cool, symmetrical St. Andrew's Cross of the Confederacy? Fine, you get a gazebo. Fuck you. <laughs> All right, so moving on to, you know, probably the, uh, the, the, the founder yes. of Georgia. It's, yes. An old you guys, um, Oglethorpe. James Edward Oglethorpe. What? This, he's your guy. What are what? you talking about? Oh, my God. What's wrong with Ogie? Literally, literally your hero. I got to say, of all the... I, oh, so... A, a, a number of the, uh, of the early colonies were explicitly set up as utopian projects. Not all of them, like uh, Virginia was famously just about like, get that money. I just want that to fucking tobacco, fuck you. <laughs> but like, you know, Boston, the New England obviously, and, uh, and Baltimore, Maryland are like, we'll see if uh, Catholics can like plant crops, see what happens there. <laughs> uh, and of course, Pennsylvania was literally the, the British crown owed William Penn's family a shit ton of money they couldn't pay back. And because he was a, a, a little Quaker guy, they're like, hey, how about we just give you like a huge chunk of America and you just go for it and make your own little, little country. And he tried for it. God bless him. And uh, most of them were religiously inspired, but Georgia was envisioned as like a, a secular attempt to create an equitable social order. 
James Oglethorpe, he had a friend who died in debtor's prison, right? And as a result, he hated the institution, and he had a vision of getting people out of debtor's prison and then having them settle uh, Georgia. It was essentially Australia for broke boys. <laughs> but instead of, you know, having to just, like, be, be convicts, they were going to be given equal plots of land, and they were all going to work in common, and they, and they were not going to just, you know, make a grab for anything they could hold. Uh, and they weren't even going to do, like, cash crop agriculture like tobacco or whatever. Uh, they were going to grow silk and wine. That was the idea behind the Georgia's original economy. They're like, we're not going to do all that stuff. Uh, but then poor Jimmy had to spend his entire time there fighting off the Spanish in Florida. And meanwhile, all those people who got brought over, and there were hundreds of colonists who were brought to Georgia to try to do this experimental uh, utopian living situation, were like, that's cool. So this much? That's all I get? Okay, cool. But like right over there, there's like all of this shit. And I could just get it. And so people just started taking it. And the utopian spirit of Georgia really died uh, in the 1820s when this nation's second gold rush happened in northern Georgia. And uh, that's what led directly to the Trail of Tears. And, and everything fell apart. And it just became another grubby exercise in uh, trying to secure the bag. Uh, I tell you, like, please help. All my silkworms are dying. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. I do love the idea of a bunch of guys at like a NASCAR race in kimonos, though. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was originally supposed to, you know, uh, yeah, liberate people from debt. Yeah, liberate people because yeah, yeah, from, uh, from debtor's prison. Yeah. We're going to uh, use America's free real estate to solve all of our social contradictions. Yeah, but uh, but also like uh, I did not know this. Uh, Professor Matskill did this. I also did not know that the original name of Atlanta was Terminus. Yes. Which I think is a, is a pretty cool name. Yeah, it's, it's way... I mean, Atlanta, what are you doing? Come on. What does that even mean? Uh, but yeah, Terminus, come on. It's metal as shit because it was the end of the rail line. It's the, last, it's the last stop. Yeah. And like what you pointed out is that this is, this is similar. I mean, like, uh, it's, it's no longer... like I mean, now that we don't have any more trains in America, <laughs> you, can barely, you can barely take any train to Atlanta. But it is now essentially like the transportation hub for all air travel in America. It's like one of the biggest airports in the that world. That was before today. That was the only time I've ever been to Atlanta was at the goddamn airport. And, you know, as long as we're talking about how everything old is new again in the state of Georgia, I have to take this moment to talk a little bit about the neighborhood we're performing in tonight. Uh, as soon as we announced we're performing at the Buckhead Theater, and by the way, uh, they've been great tonight. This is a wonderful venue. But as soon as we announced that we're performing at the Buckhead Theater, we got a lot of feedback from people who were saying, how is it possible that you dorks are playing in the coolest neighborhood in all of Atlanta? <laughs> wait, so, wait, you don't, you don't well, agree with that? I, uh, Buckhead is it's resisting the color revolution. They're loyal to, like, the true leader of the regime, Brian Kemp. And they're resisting NATO. And, you know, I'm rocking with them. They're the Catalans of Atlanta. Yes, exactly. I just, like, you, it's just, you guys are hot for uh, secession down here. But uh, I just love it because, uh, like, okay, like, the, that first of all... works out so well. I mean. <laughs> yeah. 
Interestingly, though, the city of Buckhead became part of the city of Atlanta in the 1940s. They tried not to secede because they wanted to have influence over what would be the bigger and like, you know, less white city right next door. So they were like, oh, well, we don't want those people having you know, like, undue influence over our nice little community here. So we're going to make sure that we're on the city council. Well, now that's not the case, essentially. As I understand it, a bunch of rich people have gotten their Amazon packages stolen, and now they're sick of Atlanta and want out. And I was just reading here, like, I was just looking at this ABC News article about, uh, about Buxit. <laughs> <laughs> and it says here, uh, this guy, uh, Bill White, is leading the charge to separate the community. He's the chief executive officer of the Buckhead City Committee and has helped raise over $2 million in donations from as far away as Bangladesh and Australia. I'm sorry, Bill White? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I really got to wonder about the guy in Bangladesh who sent him money. He got trapped in a reverse Nigerian prince scheme. <laughs> a guy who's making like $30 a month in a call center, and he's like, oh my God, this is awful. They're paying too much property tax. But yeah, uh, it's like a... It's a... <laughs> You know, it, we, I mean, it's a pretty obvious what's going on here, and it's never good when, like, the neighborhood itself sounds like a racial slur. <laughs> <laughs> but I gotta say, I, uh, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe a little booming for this, but I support uh, Buckheads, uh, Bucksit, I support Bugsit, but not from Atlanta, from the United States of America. Let's, you know, let's get it going. Build just, the wall. The, 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 uh, the unipolar world is over here. So, you know, like America, yeah. we're on the way out. So, like, everybody just grab what, grab what they want and head for the exits. Although, if that happens, no one will have to worry about getting their Amazon packages uh, stolen anymore because uh, nothing will be delivered because of the tariffs imposed on it by the rest of the country. I want a hard border between Buckhead and the rest of Atlanta proper. All right, the, uh, the next figure on our roster of uh, important legendary figures from Georgia political history is Alexander H. Stevens, the Ooh. vice president of the Confederacy. Ooh. Now, I just gotta say, look at this fucking guy. <laughs> he okay, this guy, okay, this is exactly what he looks like. He looks like if Clay Aiken was in Dark Souls and got hollowed. <laughs> He was uh, just... It's, it's like he looked at the Ark of the Covenant for like a half a second. Look he has, at he has this. That, like, he has that like uniquely southern phenotype of just having like a boy's skull forever. Look this this at, is what your Confederate vice presidents look like after 12 hours in the Ronco food dehydrator. Look at this absolute fucking goblin. And, okay, so... Apparently, he, okay, this, uh, this, uh, Professor Matt hit me, like, Mr. 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 Tulium Civil War over here. <laughs> hit me this. So, uh, he was perhaps this country's first documented incel. And, like, well, like I mean, the, the historical record is a little bit unclear on this, but it was either incel or volcel. He got zero pussy. That <laughs> needs to be understood. He had, no, he had no children, was a confirmed bachelor his whole life. Uh, none of the, okay, check this out. He weighed 90 pounds oh, God. and suffered from 
angina, migraines, gallbladder stones, arthritis, pneumonia, and sciatica. He was just this little, this little jerky man filled with misery. He was just, just trembling like an like a, like a inbred chihuahua all the time. <laughs> he, he was just like all side effects and no person. <laughs> yeah, very unfortunate. Actually, he was hilariously, uh, he was, speaking of the state flag of Georgia, he was a moderate. He was opposed to uh, uh, secession at first. But then once they did it, he's like, all right, fine. I guess I'll be vice president now. <laughs> you pulled my arm. Um, but was it, man, was, uh, he, was, uh, he was the guy who did the, the cornerstone speech? Yes, he's, he's the guy who sort of gave the game away. Uh, that's the if I did it of the Confederate cause. It's a speech where he just says, hey, uh, for any future generations listening, by the way, this whole war is about slavery. Uh, it's literally why we care about any of this, uh, just, you know, so you don't get it twisted. But of course, somehow, we figured out a way to forget about that. Uh, I mean, part of that might have been come down to the fact that rather than going to jail for the rest of his life or being hanged after the war, he ended up going back to the House of Representatives. Like, like George going back into the office after he quit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Matt, you, you said this other incredible factoid about him that like I said, he was always shivering. Yeah. And no matter, like, you know, this is fucking Georgia in, like, the middle of August. He would wrap himself in layers after layers of clothing, no matter how hot it was, and was once asked what heaven would be like to him, and he said, warm. Yes. Ladies and germs, a little guy named Sherman gave him his wish. <laughs> Some, uh, some cheap heat for the crowd here tonight. All right. Let's fucking go. And I got to say, you know, I mean, we're here, we're here in Atlanta. And, you know, for certain, uh, you know, adherence to sort of the, uh, like, you know, Dunning School, Lost Cause, Civil War Revisionism, uh, they love to talk about the burning of Atlanta like it was, like, history's greatest war crime. It was fine. And, like, okay. <laughs> Worse shit happens every day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he burned down a lot of people's houses, but they weren't inside. When yeah, exactly. <laughs> they could have kept him in there. It was actually very cool that they let him know, hey, we're going to be burning that. <laughs> All right, next up on our, on our uh, the Hateful Eight rundown of uh, Georgia's most notorious is Governor Richard Russell. And Senator. <laughs> and Senator. And here's the interesting thing. As related to Alexander Stevens... He was another yep. lifelong bachelor. Zero pussy. Right, Russell, I think with Stevens, he could not get pussy, and it was probably like the least of his concerns because he, yes, you know, right. it's like, but all maybe right, I'm, I'm, I'm cold. All, I yeah. would die. Yeah, I have a cold all the time. Like there's mucus that comes out of my eye. Like we're we're gonna worry about sex later. Russell was like one of uh, many Southern men who's just like, you know, what do you think's going on here? Is it a Lindsey Graham type situation? Uh, yeah. it, it, I mean, we don't know, but it, I, I would put more money on that, certainly. Yeah. Because, yeah, he was, like, not a, a, a chihuahua, as we said. He was an actual human man. Yeah. He was, um, he was uh, Lyndon B. Johnson's Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> because he can't he be like, mentor. oh, he can't get laid. It's like Lyndon Johnson was getting laid like crazy, and he was way less handsome than this guy. Yeah. Yeah, but he had a way well, bigger no, that, dick. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's part dick. of my case, is that like, if he wanted to, 
He could have fucked any number of racist women, yet he did not. There's nothing in Master of the Senate about like any racist baddies he slayed. He did not do it. And therefore, he did not want to do it. So, yeah, he, he was a, a, a lifelong bachelor who, in addition to being a member of the Warren Commission, also provided much of the kind of strategy and intellectual justification for segregation. He was essentially Mr. 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 Segregation. Mr. Too Damn Segregation. Yeah. Uh, you know, just said, uh, he publicly said that America was, quote, a white man's country, and we are going to keep it that way. He also said uh, he was vehemently opposed to political and social equality with the Negro. Uh, he supported uh, poll taxes across the South and called President Truman's support of rights for black Americans an uncalled-for attack on Southern civilization. <laughs> okay, yeah, we don't need to boo. We all understand here. We don't need to, we don't need to boo the guy. <laughs> <laughs> or you can if you want. He's I don't know. standing right behind me, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but sort of like it's, it's, the connection with Stevens here is that like there does seem to be some connection between like uh, dedicating your life to the brutal oppression and domination of like another group of human beings and just like not thinking about or caring about sex. Yeah, I think it's just you. Uh, you, you sublimate it into like uh, you, you know. We, we've all got evil inside of us, and you know, we, need to, we need to work it out in one way or another. And if you don't in one way, it's going to manifest in another. And I uh, think as, as... Wow, he's a... He's a look, at, look at that guy. This is how we know that uh, No Nut November is the most racist month of the year. All right. <laughs> one, one last uh, Georgia All-Star before we go into the break. And then we got, this, we're going to break up our, our rundown of, of the Georgia All-Stars. We got one last before our intermission here. And that is Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk is, okay, if Richard Russell was Mr. Too Damn Segregation, Dean Rusk was Mr. Too Damn Cold War. He loved he, it. This Couldn't guy, get enough. This guy, you know, he was like genuinely from a, like a humble background here in Georgia, but worked his way out to be like the longest serving Secretary of State in U.S. history with the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. And probably a guy who, like, not just the Vietnam War, but the Korean War, too, was perhaps more than any other person, like, single-handedly responsible for America's containment doctrine during the, during the Cold War. Um, he, uh, he was the guy who basically, like, the day after Nagasaki was obliterated by a nuclear bomb, drew the map, like, divided Korea across the 38th parallel. And then during... During the Korean War, he, uh, he said of the U.S. strategy in the Korean War, we were bombing every brick that was standing on top of another, everything that moved, of which Curtis LeMay said, estimated we killed 20% of the population of North Korea. We burned down every town. That's a conservative estimate, by the way. Dean Rusk, um, yeah, like I said, he was, uh, became president of the Rockefeller Foundation, and he was like basically like the epitome of like Cold War liberalism because when it really came down to it, he... You know, he, uh, he pushed back against the generals during the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, also against, uh, what's his name, uh, sorry, MacArthur when he wanted to drop nuclear bombs on China during, uh, during the Korean War. But essentially it was like he had this, had this doctrine that led to the deaths of like tens of millions of people. But when, the, like, when people like MacArthur and like the Birchers were just like took it to its logical conclusion was, which was nuclear Armageddon, drop our entire arsenal on China and Russia. He was just like, no, what are you, crazy? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he was the, uh, essentially like the prime intellectual like, and pr practitioner of America's Cold War containment doctrine. He asked, he, he loved containment and yet he could not accomplish it on his hairline. <laughs> I, I absolutely sympathize in that respect. 
and we're next up on the roster is history's greatest monster. Yes, that's right, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> now, I feel like Jimmy Carter is... It's sort of like, uh, he, 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 like he both suffers from and benefits greatly from the fact that like uh, sort of conservative Republicans have made him synonymous with being like the worst American president of all time. Like, oh, he was so Jimmy Carter, oh, another Carter administration. But that does sort of paper over the fact that he was a uniquely terrible president who was the author of like many of the worst maladies now facing this country. I mean, starting first and foremost with um, yeah, uh, funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Deregulating credit, trucking, airlines. I mean, this was one of the reasons that Kennedy actually primaried him in 1980. But uh, he, de- yeah, he's brought up sort of like a McGovern figure by people on both sides and was just sort of like the beginning but dripless start of a neoliberal turn in both parties. No, Jimmy Carter walked so Bill Clinton could run. Yeah. And, and it's just right, like... They, when they were making Bill Clinton, they were like, oh, we need to add, like, pedophilia to this. <laughs> then it will, like, win re-election. But, like, as, think of mind, like, you know, as regards to, like, as, as he sort of, like, set the mold for, like, every Democrat that came after him being a just huge fucking loser. The thing is, like, it, un, unlike when Clinton came into office and, had, and, like, triangulation was a strategy to, like, how to deal with Congress... Jimmy Carter became president at a time when the, it was like essentially Congress was still governed by the like New Deal Great Society consensus, and he was really the first like so, like made a conscious choice to move away from that into like neoliberalism to ditch Keynesian economics and to like yeah de- deregulate industry and like de- deregulate all industries and finance and throw labor overboard. And the thing is like. He didn't need to do that to, to win votes or appeal to Congress. If anything, it probably killed him, and that's why he was a one-term president. But the thing is, it was like, he's, he set, in, he set in, in, in path this idea that if you are a Democrat and you are pursuing policies that uh, greatly, uh, greatly, to the great detriment of the people who vote for you and that are like overwhelmingly unpopular with the American public, then you must be doing something right. Yeah, it proves that you're a good person and, and a virtuous one because you're not doing things for political gain. You're doing things because they're the right thing to do, but they're only the right thing to do because you have been brainwashed by Milton Friedman and shit. And that's, <laughs> and that, that's so you're like, oh, no, peop, no, people need to suffer. It's for their own good. And then it turns out, no, it just it took all of the money that was being created anyway and, and privatized it, basically. And, but he got to be like, oh, they kicked me out because they couldn't handle the truths. <laughs> They couldn't handle the grim truths that I was giving them as president. So he gets to go home and spend the next 60 years building fucking houses for poor people and think that he is the greatest martyr in political history. Uh, and that matters way more than actually doing anything for anybody, which is now the model that all Democrats have to follow because Carter inaugurated the party that could no longer actually have a like pitch to improve anybody's conditions of life. Like Democrats for... When they were popular, their deal was, hey, you want more money? We'll give it to you. You want more of this and that? We got you. After, with Carter, it started being, we can't do shit for shit. We can't do anything for anybody. But what we can do is look sad about it and make you feel like we empathize with you. Carter, Carter was also the start of a democratic trait of sort of asking for austerity from your voters 
while also giving giveaways in finance and everything. Yeah. Like, like literally was, reorienting the economy around like holders of other people's debt and, and at the expense of anybody else, uh, but then acting like it was, uh, it was for the greater good. You know, Jimmy Carter, he was the first person to, to utilize the Paul Volcker summoning circle. Yeah. The thing that our leader, the flame that our leaders cannot relink. The Paul Volcker flame has burned out now, and Brandon is suffering the consequences. What's so funny is that, like, so obviously, for, a guy, for Carter, it's like when he loses the election, it's like that's sort of a, a validation of him. It's like they couldn't handle it. Uh, I'm basically Jesus, and I sacrificed myself to, uh, to do uh, uh, what was best for everybody. Uh, but there still was a pitch to voters in 1980, which was, well, we're going to tell them the truth. We're going to tell them like it is, and then we're going to propose realistic solutions based on that premise. Never for one moment of uh, uh, thinking that the guy running against him could just lie. <laughs> like, the Carter idea was like, well, we have this reality, these new constraints, this new economy with the goal, with the goal, with the uh, energy shock with the oil and everything. The, like, the old economic engine doesn't work. We need a new one. And that's going to require, like, a real confrontation with, like, what our values are as a people. Like, where should power be? Like, what is freedom? We're going to have to reckon with this stuff. We have to, right? And everyone's going to want to vote. Everyone's vote's going to be like, you're right. Uh, we have to, to take a serious uh, look into ourselves and you're serious about it, so we're voting for you. And your solutions are the best because, of course, you're the most rational and reasonable. But you're, he didn't realize he, he would be running against somebody who just said, no, it's not. Everything's fine. What are you talking about? Everything's great. The only problem is that you're taxing away people's ability to fucking ball out. And, <laughs> and, the, and the guy would spend, and the next decade, or the next real, I mean, until now, really, that engine would be fueled, the uh, everything's fine engine would be fueled by the cheap credit that Carter brought on. Right, exactly. And, you know, like... But, like, Carter, the entire 1980 campaign, watch, Carter's people watching Reagan just, like, respond to every crisis by just making something up instead of confronting with the reality that, like, they knew existed and that all the media existed. They were like the, they were like the coach of the opposing team at the end of Airbud. <laughs> <laughs> like what, what what the there's a, there's a dog what are you do? this can't count and then the ref is like I'm sorry who is Buckley it? versus Vallejo there's no rule here that says you can't pay a dog to play basketball who was the uh, hapless loser who worked for Carter who was like oh I know I'm gonna get Carter to read uh, Culture of Narcissism that is very funny like all the, all the like the Lashians people like Chris, read Christopher Lash, Lash and they're like you guys need to understand the failure of uh, modern liberalism. Jimmy Carter and his entire inner circle read Christopher Lash, and when they were trying to figure out what to do about like the economic crisis and, and the energy crisis in the late seventies, they like summoned a bunch of people to literally do a book club on Christopher Lash, and then they brought him to the White House and literally said, "What should we do?" And he's like, "I don't know." <laughs> Well, I mean, like, I mean, it's, uh, talking about, like, this is, like, a tour through, like, the past, present, and future of America through Georgia's, like, most legendary political figures. But in terms of everything old is new again, by the end of Carter's first term, 
His economic policy was based around trying to start a recession in America to bring down inflation. And like whether it's like Larry Summers or other economic mandarins now, that is exactly what they're hoping for right now. Because guess what? The labor market isn't tight enough. It's not tight enough. We've got to get people back in their shitty fucking jobs. We've got to crack that whip, bring down inflation, get, another, get that Volcker summoning circle going again in the Federal Reserve. We're going to deal with this inflation problem. And like I said, yeah, Jimmy Carter, he, he fucking he, he cast that mold for everything the Democratic Party has done since then. Well... The, dif- the difference between him, though, and Brandon is, is that after his one term, Carter went on to build homes for the homeless and win a Nobel Prize and write thoughtfully about uh, his role in American history. Be the only and- American politician even slightly critical of Israel. Exactly. Uh, whereas uh, Brandon, as soon as he finishes his one term, is just going to get in his dad's car and drive directly off of a ravine. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon like is... Like in the cartoon we just watched. That's going to happen. Brandon is going to the kiln of the first flame. <laughs> well, Georgia, it, it, it's, not just, it's not just Democrats who have set the mold for everyone who comes after them. They're Republicans, too. And we got to talk about my boy, Newt Gingrich. Honestly, one of the most consequential figures in American political history, like top five. Very impressive. Okay. He rode the wave. <laughs> we got to talk about just, just how much swag dude has in this photo here. He's perching his hand on top of his paunch, his gut. He's, he's rocking the shades. He's got like a little grin on, but he's presiding over a plate that is a deconstructed cheeseburger. I don't think it's deconstructed. Like, you, you can make fun of that, but I got to say... That plate looks really good. No, no, it's not deconstructed. They ordered it without the bun. Okay, that's well, the alpha way. That's the Donald Trump way. That's how burgers. Trump does it. Yeah. That, that's, yeah, that, that's how Donald Trump, he will live to be 110 years old. Because here's, here's, here's a little secret, folks. McDonald's is actually good for you if you throw out the buns. It's true. It's just like if you get Taco Bell uh, gorditas and you put chopped up red peppers on them, they're healthy for you. <laughs> you get the deal. So we all know we all know Newt Gingrich's role as you know being like a sort of like the the engine of the, the moral majority, Republicans taking back Congress, you know, like a, the the sort of nemesis of Bill Clinton. But here's a lesser known thing about Newt Gingrich. You know, obviously like people like uh, Republicans, they're reactionaries, they're very much looking to the past, and you know, like they, they don't like new things, they don't like changes. Newt. Despite the fact that, like, you know, he's been a lifelong Republican, like, you know, so, so like he's, a, he's, a, he's definitely a right-wing guy. But as far as Republicans go, he is actually a futurist. And no, but by that, by that, I mean he is obsessed with futurism and wacky ideas about the way in which technology will make the world a better, better place. He's, he was obsessed with this guy named Alvin Toffler, who wrote a book called Future Shock, which, um, you know, a lot of people credit with predicting, like, the, you know, a shift from, like, an industrial to an information economy. <laughs> new, yo, Anybody new... got an extension cord? Newt's draining the energy out of us all tonight. He's sitting there, he's, ju- he's eating the juice and going, mmm, delicious. So this is a, it's just like a, a little sample here of, of Newt Gingrich's obsession with uh, futurism. So, 
There we go. All right, let's go. Back, back in the game. Like so, a NASCAR pit crew. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Newt Gingrich wrote a book that borrows heavily from Future Shock, and in it, uh, he uh, gushes about the possibility of new strains of wheat that will function as legumes. Ooh. In Future Shock, the Toffler, so it's Alvin and his, his what? Yeah. This is of a particular interest to Newt Gingrich. In Future Shock, uh, the Tofflers float the idea that adolescence is on the way out the door, writing, children who at 12 are no longer childlike. Adults who are at 50 are children of 12. In Newt Gingrich's book, he writes, it is conceivable that at our grandchildren's time, adolescence will become a thing of the past. Leisure time and dramatically different social norms, adults would have a marriage career allowing for at least three different stages. Incidentally, the number of marriages that Gingrich has had. <laughs> he writes, uh, it is natural, the inevitable outgrowth of the social order in which automobiles are rented, dolls traded in, and dresses discarded after one-time use. It is the mainstreaming marriage pattern of tomorrow. Rules against polygamy might become relaxed and open relationships might even be encouraged. The old male fantasy of the captain's paradise may become a reality for some. Well, well it is, you know, a sacrifice required for the future of the human race. To go with this segment, we have a picture of Newt oh, yeah. in, in Second Life. So yeah, this is from, this is when uh, uh, Newt, he's a big, he loves being on the computer. And in 2007, he, t he says, uh, he entered the digital world of Second Life and in the form of his avatar delivered a lecture on the steps of the U.S. Capitol and praised the digital world as a parallel country that could enable us to build a new and better America. He that's funny, because that's 2007 and that shit looks better than the metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Newt's in there right now. <laughs> Newt is in the metaverse. As soon as they announced it, as soon as their first uh, the demo video happened, he just swan dived into like uh, the Minority Report vat, so that he could hook into a fucking Matrix node and immediately live entirely in the fucking metaverse. He's there now. He's never leaving. He's always been there. Yeah, he is the Neo of the metaverse now. Yes. <laughs> This is, my, this is my favorite wacky new idea about fu the future, though. He proposed that, quote, a mirror system in space could provide the light equivalent of many full moons, so there would be no need for nighttime lighting on highways. <laughs> Ambient light covering entire areas could reduce the current danger of criminals lurking in darkness. <laughs> Mirrors could be arranged. <laughs> mirrors could be arranged to light given metropolitan areas only during particular periods, so there would be darkness late at night for sleeping. Oh, how, how nice! There'd be darkness a few hours a night for sleeping, but there'd be ambient light so everyone could work and be free from criminals lurking in <laughs> shadowed <laughs> spaces. And all it will take is a mirror the size of Antarctica in orbit <laughs> around the planet. But uh. You know, one last thing about Newt. You know, we ha he, has, he has very forward-thinking ideas about marriage and relationships. But I got to say, his current relationship, I, I live for it. Newt and Callista Gingrich are my... Let's just, sorry, I, I, I cyber-stalk Callista Gingrich. So, like, let's just go through her... 
I was just gonna I was just gonna pull up a still image of her uh, for this part, but uh, Will would have gotten too sprung on stage. It would have been distra- it would have distracted him. <laughs> I, I love loved her work in the Black Hole Sun video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, this is... Uh, uh, one last wacky Gingrich idea that I love. Uh, Gingrich caused a major stir on the 2012 campaign trail with his suggestion that the U.S. should overhaul child labor laws and let failing schools replace janitors with students. <laughs> he said, quote... I tried for years to have a very simple model, Gingrich said during a speech at Harvard last month. These schools should get rid of unionized janitors, have one master janitor, pay local students to take care of the school. The kids would actually do the work. They'd have cash. They'd have pride in the schools. They'd begin the process of rising. (laughs) I got an idea. Replace the faculty. Have the students teach each other. They, they teach each other for class credit, and then nobody has to get paid. I think knowing what I know about schools and growing up, the student janitor would be the most respected kid by the other kid. <laughs> He'd be the most popular kid in school, the student janitor. All right, Georgia, well, like we said, uh, we talked about uh, Jimmy Carter, an American president from Georgia. Okay, let's talk about... Let's talk about the next president of the United States from Georgia. Talk about sprung. Don't you hate it when the crazy ones are hot? Get used to it now because she's going to be repping Georgia as the president of the unincorporated zone of the eastern United States in 2050. She, she will be the first empress of the Buckhead Autonomous Zone. <laughs> now, uh, Marjorie's been... She looks the... like one of the ah, uh, real monsters. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I didn't come up with this. Someone said that she looked... I, I have not got it out of my head since I read it, but someone said she looked like Ron Perlman from the Beauty and the Beast TV show. <laughs> it's uncanny. <laughs> it's, it's uncanny. So now, now Marjorie has been in the news as of late because you all know CPAC is going on right now. But Marjorie, uh, she did a little double dipping because she went to CPAC and then Nazi CPAC. <laughs> she went to Nick Fuentes's American America First Political Action Committee, and it's funny to be like because we've been to CPAC, and the idea that there's a Nazi CPAC as well seems a little superfluous. Yeah, it's a hat on a hat. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like, like Will said, we've been to CPAC. I've spoken at America First PAC. And it's crazy to see her also do that. But of course, like, I mean, MTG, I think, honestly, like, she represents the future of this country because I think really the, 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 the definitive power block that will shape the coming decades of American life are absolutely insane white women. Women who have been thrown out of everywhere. (laughs) Women who, if you drive by a Best Buy, they're like, oh, you don't even want to get me started on the manager there. (laughs) They were not activated before. They were not political entities. Something about Trump spoke to them, and now, now they're the force that will carry us into the future. 
My favorite fact about Marjorie Taylor Greene, though, is that according to the Daily Mail, she openly cheated on her husband of 25 years with a polyamorous tantric sex guru and then moved on to another affair with the manager at her gym. Uh, when approached by the Daily Mail, the tantric sex guru said, I have no interest in talking about anything to do with that woman. Everything with her comes to no good. <laughs> uh, according to Daily Mail, insiders say she was so brazen about her affairs, they believed her marriage was on the rocks, but it appears the couple has put into infidelity behind them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that. But in response to DailyMail.com's request for comment, Taylor Greene said it was another attempt to smear my name because I'm the biggest threat to the Democrats' socialist agenda. Agree. Also looks like a foot with eyes. <laughs> All right, uh, Chris, can we play that, that, that MTG uh, campaign ad? Yeah, before we move on, I do just, I've been staring at this photo and I do like the quality of it, that it looks like a prescriptions med ad where she's like, starts shooting the uh, gun and then turns you and is like, have you ever been shooting your automatic rifle and IBS starts up? <laughs> that happens to me as well. All right, here's the next one. Joe Biden abandoned Americans in Afghanistan. God, it's, it's like you underestimate how awful her voice is. Oh, oh, God. Americans to the Taliban and armed an Islamic terrorist nation with $83 billion in weapons like this one. Biden should be impeached. Now I'm doing a gun giveaway of my own, but for Americans only. I want you to win this 50 caliber rifle that Democrats will ban if they keep the House next year. While Joe Biden broke America's pledge to never leave a man behind, Nancy Pelosi is sneaking the Green New Deal into the $3.5 trillion budget. And in 2022, I'm going to blow away the Democrat socialist agenda. Let's go. It's a Prius. She's shooting a Prius. Target destroyed. Go to the website below and sign up to win my 50 caliber gun before Joe Biden bans it. I fucking, I fucking love that the car just blows up. <laughs> got my. <laughs> what, did you say that you say a 50 caliber rifle round wouldn't do that to a car? What do you, what do you know? You don't know about anything about guns. Uh, no, I, I like in that video she said, uh, Joe Biden, like, uh, we, he, he let 13 of our best soldiers die. And I like that because it implies, like, if they were, like, kind of shitty soldiers, it would be okay. Honestly, yes. If our 13 best soldiers just got blown up like that, we're fucked. Yeah, how good could they be? So that's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, believe me when I say, folks, the future belongs to her. Oh, indeed. And then last but not least on our rundown of amazing women from Georgia, Kelly Loeffler. I have a, I have a special affection for Kelly Loeffler because I don't consider her like truly yours. Kelly Loeffler um, has a flat affect, a base unlikability, and just an offness of human interaction that gives her away as a native Illinoisan. 
I don't know. I, I think she's really great on Real Housewives of Cobb County. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't have too much about Kelly Loeffler other than that I think she is the richest senator in U.S. history and that her husband owns the company that runs the New York Stock Exchange. And wouldn't you know it, a day after receiving a briefing on the COVID pandemic, sold $18.7 million worth of stock in companies that, wouldn't you know it, were very vulnerable to a global pandemic. But don't worry, the investigation found she did nothing wrong. And it wasn't just her, I mean, it was Diane Feinstein too. Yeah, the, the official report said, stop pocket watching. Was it, was, was it her where she, the campaign ad was um, in huge block letters, cleared of any wrongdoing? <laughs> yeah. No, that was the other guy. Oh, you're right, right, right. That, that was, was the David other loser in the yeah. same election. <laughs> How do they lose? <laughs> they, yeah, they ran like Democrats. I loved watching it. It was hilarious, but... I don't know. I, I hope she'll be back. I follow her on every social media platform. I, I like her because, like, no one was down for her. No one was, like, a Kelly Loeffler fan. You know, you liked her, you voted for her because Trump was like, hey, uh, vote for Kelly. She's great. But no, no one's really into her. She's the least charisma out of any Republican in the Senate, I think. But I hope she comes back. All right, that does it for our, our hateful eight from the past, present, and future of the great state of Georgia. Uh, but I, I, I got I uh, Glenn Jacobs has has weighed in on um, like uh, like current events, and I just want to share share this with you guys tonight. He had a tweet the other day. Let's put it up on the screen here. I'm gonna read it. If you on the left are shocked by Putin's aggression, wake up, sunshine. Okay. Historically, in the real world, might <laughs> makes right. Weakness, which is really what the left is all about, is not a virtue. It's a fatal character flaw. And no, the U.S. should still not get involved. <laughs> and I gotta say, I agree. Right. I agree with Kane. I agree with Kane a hell of a lot more than uh, a lot of people in the Democratic Party on this. And you know, as long as we're, as long as we're talking about current events, I gotta, I gotta say, there, there's a, there's, like, like any time a war happens, like we all remember what it was like when this country did the war in Iraq, and it was like if you questioned it, you were like objectively on the, you were all, you're on the side of the terrorists. There are so many people that are thrilled right now that another country of comparable size and military might to America is doing their own version of the Iraq war and like a completely unjustified invasion of another country because it allows them to just be like, okay, we can, America's the good guy now, right? We're the good guy because Russia's the bad guy, and you have to say Russia's the bad guy, and that invalidates everything that America has done leading up to this. Right. And it's like, why can't you just condemn Putin? Why can't you just condemn Putin? Well, it's like, okay, I do. Fine. I condemn my own government, but it does fuck all. What is it going to do for Russia? No, but like, I just like, you should. You should never let people be like, like bully you into thinking that you have to take this like sort of imaginary reasonable position. It's like, why can't you just do this one thing? Well, if you let people push you around by that, like it's never going to be good enough for them. It's never going to be good enough. And if like, it, it, what they want you to do is just support an escalation of this war, which I'm sorry, I'm not going to, and no one should. Even, it doesn't matter if you say you are against the invasion as virtually everyone I know has, they're going to act like you didn't say it so they can keep fucking talking because they are so excited to have a war like this where America is not, in their minds, one of the bad guys. No Even matter though, what, you cannot jump when they tell you to fucking jump. And in five years, 
when some Frankenstein collection of right-wing militias is terrorizing Ukraine just like it has using our weapons and they pretend like they weren't riding this fucking wave, you better remember. Well, now let's move on to the TV pilot we wrote for you guys tonight. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's like, like, and also like, yeah, Putin's a bad guy, but like we like he's probably he's in power largely because of this fucking country. Yeah. Like we literally chose him to fucking like he was, he, he was our guy. So like I mean, it, like it, 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 the fact that Russia is doing something uh, that's very similar to what this country does all the fucking time does not fucking get all the people who supported the Iraq War off the hook. And this is what they really think and want now. I learned it from watching you, Dad. <laughs> This is really what they want because they've been they've been tired of like this is why there's all these articles now about like the left's Putin problem is because these people have had to spend the last 16 years taking it on the chin because they because we because you know like if you were against the Iraq War you can you, you can hold that over them and now they're using this war to hold it over you even though that they've never faced any fucking consequences for what they've helped rot in the world yeah that's right fuck them you can sign you can sign up for DSA right here just because. <laughs> DSA has caught a ton of shit in the last few days from people who have been wrong about every fucking thing in the world for the most even-handed statement I've seen on this entire thing. It may not be 2016 anymore. You may not get the kind of clout you did. But if you're here, I can tell you're really riding for them. And I may make fun of DSA, but when I say I love you, I mean it. I'm still with them. I hope you are too. Felix, didn't you say that the mayor of Kiev is a former heavyweight boxer? The most boring heavyweight ever. It does not justify what Russia has done, but Vladimir Klitschko ruined the heavyweight division. Well, I mean, kind of. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day uh, if and when Putin ever does invade main, mainland North America and Kane can become the next big <laughs> hero, the big folk hero we all need. Standing athwart history, yelling stop. All our folk heroes are going to be called, like, the Spongebob of Tuscaloosa. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's... Enough serious talk. Let's get silly. Let's get silly tonight. So, all right, here's a question for the audience. How many of you are familiar with a little TV show little television program called Justified. That's what we like to hear. Thank God, otherwise this bit would have bombed. Terry and Tom, you guys are Justified heads. For anyone in the audience tonight who's maybe not familiar with the saga of U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens, like how, how would you describe the television show Justified? Um, recently divorced man lives in a town that the TV show insists on telling you is rural. But it's actually just a mid-sized town. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, like the two towns are Harlan and Lexington. They act like they're just like side by side and like the same size and all that kind of stuff. So. Oh boy, <laughs> we got the IMDb goof section over here. <laughs> uh, I would just, I mean, I, I, that, that's a good description. I would describe Justified is about essentially the world's worst federal agent. Yeah. But who's also the world's coolest federal agent. Yes. Uh, mile, yeah. And, like, the two things are, are closely related. So, you know, one of the, one of the ways you can, you can break into show business 
is by writing spec scripts. So we have for you tonight, we've written a, a couple scenes here. We've, we've plotted out an episode of Justified called Kentucky Swap, A Justified Story. Now, Terrence and Tom, I know you guys are fans of the show, so let me ask you this. Have you ever fantasized to yourself or ever wondered what it would be like if podcasts, or perhaps our podcasts, existed in the world of the, the fictional version of Harlan County as portrayed and justified? Very often. More frequently than you would think, yeah. Well, you have t- no idea. I, I podcasted with Felix from uh, the Hardys in Harlem once. <laughs> it was a very special day. Terrence and Tom, you're in luck tonight because if our podcast did exist in Harlan County, Kentucky, I think it might sound a little something like this. Now, here in Harlan County, we've been dealing with company men. G-men, T-men, revenue agents and Pinkerton since that great oak was but just a seed. Now, podcasts ain't nothing new. <laughs> we got a place for all you P-men, too. Your choice. Mine shaft or coal slurry. That don't make no difference to me. <laughs> now, let's give you this a surprise to you. That was actually Walton Goggins doing that line rip. Shout out to what we can now say officially, friend of the show, Walton Goggins, for coming through with us. The, 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 the most godly actor uh, working in TV and movies today, in my opinion. Walton Goggins is the absolute man. Now, originally when we pitched him this idea, I was hoping it would be like sort of a cameo-style iPhone video. But he is such an insane perfectionist that if he's going to do the Boyd Crowder character, he needed to be like in full Boyd Crowder attire. He needed to be, like, in a set that looked like, you know, some, like, uh, backwoods, uh, like, Harlan County, Kentucky thing. But, like, no. He came through with a flawless line read for us. We got one more tonight. But I just wanted to surprise you guys on stage. Our boy Walton came through for you tonight. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. The absolute king. Uh, maybe the best TV actor of my lifetime. Maybe ever. Uh, and we are so happy to drag him down with us. <laughs> We are so happy to take a uniquely talented, charismatic, and nice person, uh, a great actor, and force him to co-star in a movie with Steven Seagal, just by association <laughs> with us. All right, so uh, the script we've written is called Kentucky Swap, A Justified Story. And, like, uh, Phyllis, how, how, would you, how would you pitch, like, uh, like uh, the essential setup of this episode? What's the important thing you need What's to know? the logline? Fan, fans of... Uh, Chapo Filmhouse will notice that a recurring theme in their films, TV shows, and radio plays is the idea that wife swapping, devil's threesomes, deucing, and Eiffel Towering all hold a mystical property that uh, <laughs> is, the, is the fulcrum of political, social, and spiritual power in the United States. <laughs> Kentucky Swap, a justified story, is no different. <laughs> we, we promise, we deliver. So, in our screenplay, in, in, in the fictional world we've created, in the state of Kentucky, under very specific circumstances, if you do wife-swapping stuff, if you are a swinger and you swap under officially recognized swinging conventions, then all the shared property in the marriage becomes what's known as an engine marriage, meaning that the land and property held is now free from the federal government <laughs> taxation, and you can build a casino, dump toxic waste, have dog fights. So... I, I'm sorry, can I point something out? I have seen every man who's here with a girlfriend start <laughs> hugging his girlfriend the moment this segment started. 
This is a real, I'm sorry, I didn't know they were going to do this moment. <laughs> we may never have had a president, but we have the best laws. <laughs> so, okay, the, the episode begins, of course, with uh, our U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens. Is, um, she, he's tasked with uh, babysitting um, hot wife Casey Glump, who is the, <laughs> the wife of hog industry magnate Clem Glump who is currently having all of his assets appraised and seized by the IRS because he was dumping uh, hog, hog waste in school lunches. <laughs> so, like, this, this, is the, this is the setup. This is the inciting incident. So we've we have got a screenplay here. Uh, Terrence, now, who would like to read the part of Raylan Givens? I th- no, I think, Tom, I think that's all you, man. All right, Tom, you're going to do Raylan? All right. It's my star-turning moment. All right. Wanky, you be Raylan. Matt, you be Clem Glump. And I, I will continue to portray the part of uh, hot wife Casey Klump. I will read the stage direction. Chris will read the stage direction. So this is a scene opens. This is at the Glump Manor as all of his, his, his worldly possessions is being stripped away from him by the IRS. And his wife is being babysat by the hottest U.S. Marshal in the world. All right. Marshal, can I fix you a glass of this fine Kentucky bourbon? There's something about seeing my husband's collection of Civil War memorabilia elephant head ashtrays and rare Yu-Gi-Oh cards on the auction block <laughs> that makes my throat as dry as California in wildfire season. Can I wet your whistle? Well, according to my job, it's against regulations for me to consume alcohol while on duty. You know, keeping a cool head while carrying a firearm and such. But don't let me stop you from imbibing. The regulations only apply to me. Marshal, judging by that cowboy hat you never take off, I'd be shocked if that head of yours has ever been anything less than cool. Well, it helps keep the sun out of my eyes, but I've got three active ingredients into my discharging my service weapons in the bar I live at. (laughs) 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 So my boss, my ex-wife, and the several dozen people I've shot over the last month might beg to differ with your assessment of the temperature of my noggin. Well, what's the point of having a head if you can't lose it every now and again? Clem walks in in a huff. Marshal, you tell those IRS boys of yours they gotta wear gloves before handling my precious collector's items. One of them got barbecue sauce on my Shonen Jump Championship Series Doom Caliber Night Car. <laughs> I swear there ain't no more freedom in this country if a businessman gets his finest possessions stripped from him simply for disposing of hog waste in school lunches. Those kids love their pulled pork sandwiches. Forgive my husband, Marshal. Sometimes I think he attends to the needs of his hog waste and Yu-Gi-Oh cards more than the certain needs a wife may have. Well, that's a fine and rare card, Mr. Glump. But you see, the thing is, when you declared bankruptcy and took a plea, they became the government's baseball cards. Yu-Gi-Oh cards, boy! That's Yu-Gi-Oh cards! You say go, I can't leave. It's my job, but I do appreciate the sentimental value. I had a Nolan Ryan rookie card. I love that card, but my daddy sold it to me. And t- <laughs> I'm sorry. He sold it to buy into an MLM that sold, <laughs> that sold sawdust pills as vitamin supplements. 
That's a sad story, Marshall, but I can see you're overcome by your tragic upbringing to become a man of taste and character. Perhaps my wife can show you a few cards for my private stock. Casey ushers Raylan away into a secret room with a bed, mirrored ceiling, and the rare Blue Eyes White Dragon first edition card. I sure hope I haven't put you in an awkward position, what with your husband being ruined and unwilling to satisfy you sexually. Marshall, this is just the first of several awkward positions I'm going to need you to fill. Now, now, there's not any regulations against sleeping with material witnesses in federal investigations, is there? Not the last time I checked. Raylan ignores his explicit instructions not to have sex with the wife. But while pumping away, he notices Clem is watching. That's a mighty fine stroke you got, Marshall. Not since I watched Kaylee have sex with that Hulk Hogan have I been this impressed. In the ensuing confusion, Casey and Clem get the drop on Raylan, brain him with a frying pan, and make their escape. All right, scene. scene. That's the end of the first scene. And now, like, uh, like in, the, in the intervening action here, like we said, I was like, so uh, Clem and Casey, they make their escape, but as they're escaping, none other than the nefarious Dixie, Ma- Dixie Mafia middleman, Win Duffy, absconds oh. with Casey and kicks Clem into a private stock of his own special reserve hog waste. At this point in our notes here, we said, uh, it should be revealed at this point that Clem is played by a ludicrously overqualified actor like Sir Ben Kingsley or Jeremy Irons. <laughs> All right, next scene is, uh, of course, like, you know, Raylan fucked up. He had sex with the wife. He lost the, the number one witness in the case. He's, he screwed it up again. So he's, uh, he's, he's in the office, and uh, he's being reamed out by his boss, Art, the, the boss of the Lexington, Kentucky, U.S. Marshal's office. Uh, Terrence, you want to do Art for the I'll scene? I'll be Art, yes. You be Art. Tom, you, you, you keep it railing. And uh, Felix, you want to be the FBI guy? Would love to. All right. All right. All right. When, when you walk in, I got to be like this. Hat or... Yeah, give, yeah. Give, give, that, give the swag of Art. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. The Nick Searcy swag. Uh... Scene opens in Art's office. Art and an FBI stiff are reaming out Raylan for letting Clem and Casey escape. (laughs) Raylan, just what about my order to you not to have sex with the hot wife? Did you not understand? Did I mistake you for someone with a working understanding of the English language? I guess it's one of those things, like the scorpion and the frog. The scorpion had sex with witnesses be... Because it's his nature. (laughs) And Arch, you can't go against nature. (laughs) You're a regular David Attenborough, Raylan. But your stinger has got you in more trouble than with just me. The frog in this little fable you're spinning, our friends in the FBI, are furious. Marshall Gibbons, we are less than optimally pleased with your performance. (laughs) Well, the husband seemed to think my performance was up to snuff. Uh, can you believe he was watching me the whole time? Of course he was watching you, Raylan. They're swingers. And as such, Casey was, Casey was the key in the whole damn key party. A 10-month FBI sting intended to place a CI at the heart of Kentucky's swinger mafia. Casey was the hottest wife in the Southeast, and now she's Christ knows 
where doing Christ knows who without her FBI handler. Raylan turns to the FBI agent. Is all this true? <laughs> Marshall, the FBI has been running all wife swapping in America since Hoover. All real power in this country is held by a few men, and all that power, and all the power those few men have come from their smoke show wives. <laughs> Raylan, did you actually think real couples are genuinely into this kind of thing? They all claim to be professional amateurs, but they're really all federal informants. <laughs> well, this isn't a total loss. We've been grooming Raylan for a special detachment to our FBI stud force for wife-pleasing. <laughs> With you on the team, we can, we can sheep-dip you into the upcoming Swingers Mafia convention at Versailles, Kentucky. <laughs> We've wired all the rooms for sound and video and POV. <laughs> we, just need, we just need you to switch the bowl of keys so that all the keys go to your room all of the targets in Operation Devil's Triangle are robber barons who are going to use the state's largest and oldest orgy to remove all their property from the reach of the federal government and if their wives only have sex with you a federal agent all their land will belong to the FBI We've got lots of plans for that that don't involve toxic waste, dogfighting, or casinos. Agent, you're not saying I have to do all my business again with people watching, are you? Braylon, as God is my witness, I'm going to make sure every member of the Lexington office watches you until our friends at the FBI and every single wife is fully satisfied. Your stroke game belongs to Mr. J. Edgar Hoover from now on. Oh, brother, here we go again. And see. <laughs> All right. Uh, this, next play, this next scene takes place in uh, Win Duffy's famous RV and features uh, Win Duffy, Hot Wife Casey, uh, and uh, Boyd Crowder. Uh, so uh, let's see. Uh, who wants to be Boyd here? I'll do it. Okay, you be Boyd? Yeah. All right, I'll be, I'll, be, uh, I'll be Wynn Duffy and Felix. Why don't you read Casey for a second? Ooh, okay, right. I can really bite into this role. All right. <clears throat> all right. I told you, Mr. Duffy, I'm already married to Clem. We came into the lifestyle together, and any advantage you hope to gain from this swap will only go to my sweet, stupid Clem. Well, Mrs. Clump, despite my admiration for a relationship as forward thinking is yours. There's just a small problem that according to Kentucky's very stringent and specific wife swapping laws, you invalidated your swinging certificate with your little diversion of our Marshall friend, which would normally be all fine and dandy with me, unless of course your little liaison was due to you working with a certain law enforcement agency. I had sex with Raylan because he's cool. He's probably the most handsome man alive. They call gals like me cougars because when we see something we want, we pounce. Men like you all say they're broad-minded, but at the end of the day, you sit here in your fancy RVs and watch women's tennis to get your rocks off. <laughs> and it's all about who owns what to you. You can't possess a woman's heart. Who owns what? Precisely, my dear. In this case, the who being your husband and the what being a large tract of land the Dixie Mafia would like to build a casino on. And we can't do that until we've officially swamped. And to do that, you need to be married, which is why I have my snake handling friend here to make it official. 
I assure you that whatever extracurricular activities you're inclined towards have no bearing on my fondness towards you. Or should you decline my generous offer, my extreme not fondness towards you. That don't make a lick of sense. Now, normally I'm not given to being loquacious, <laughs> but if I could offer my services to you, not just an ordained snake handler and universal life church minister, but by way of a verbose explanation of your current predicament, vis I be this here shotgun wedding. You see, the folks here in Harlan County have never had much. And what little we did have is always being taken from us by the coal companies and the gun thugs. And if it wasn't them, it was the federal government. All we got is family, you see. And the bomb between husband and wife was the most important thing at all until men like my daddy Bo and Arlo Givens were able to take advantage of certain legal loopholes that made it so certain sexual practices would render not just a marriage, but all the share property within free from the interference of the government and their heavy-handed taxes and regulations. So you see, you're the fastest filly of the swinging mafia. All the swinging goes through you, and after tomorrow night, we're putting you in the Breeders' Cup. And, sweetheart, you're going to race for all of us, and by the end of the night, half the land of the state of Kentucky is going to belong to us. Can you believe there are folks who call what I do cheating? <laughs> scene. All right. The, uh, the interim between this scene and the next scene, there's a classic justified second act double cross. Uh, a Kentucky swap is what Boyd thought he was getting into. But when Duffy, taking advantage of his mobile office, has actually crossed state lines into Tennessee, where there can only be one swap. And they're not both married to her. And we said uh, the, the, the change in Tennessee state uh, wife swapping law was a, recent, it was a rider attached to a recent anti-CRT public education bill. <laughs> All right, and now the exciting conclusion of Kentucky Swap, a justified story. This is a, this is a, a standoff between uh, Raylan and Clem over wife law at the uh, Versailles wife fucking convention. Uh, Matt, why don't you stick to, be, uh, you stick to being Clem? Yeah. Uh, Tom, you be, you be Raylan. Uh, you, stick, you stick to being Nick, and uh, I'll be the FBI agent. All right. Oh, yeah, and a little um, texture for this scene. At the wife-swapping convention, the biggest one in America and the world, uh, Michael Rappaport is back in Justified. He's not playing a crow. He's playing himself. The entertainment for the wife-swapping convention is him performing a one-man show about the five pillars of hip-hop. <laughs> Just a little texture. I would like to see that. You're going to be good. God damn it! You took everything from me. First my hog waist, my Yu-Gi-Oh cards, then my beautiful hot wife. This ain't over, Marshall. I know you're quick on the draw, but are you quick enough to make Casey come before I raise this gun and pull the trigger? Raylan looks at Casey and tips his big cowboy hat. Casey climaxes immediately from how hot Raylan is and how... <laughs> and Raylan shoots Clem's gun out of his hand. You bastard! Can I give you a little friendly advice? If you wake up in the morning and you lick someone's asshole, you eat ass. <laughs> if you spend all day licking asshole after asshole, sometimes your breath's gonna smell like shit. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Does this kind of thing ever actually work for you? There's Kentucky Swap Law, and there's Marshall's Law, and I've killed at least 60 people in the line of duty. 
and at least half of them were justified. And I still have a job, so you tell me. Fair enough. Okay, okay. Enough of this. Operations Devil's Triangle has been a great success. Raylan, on behalf of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, I want to thank you for your exceptional stud work. Not so fast, Agent Smith. My name, my name is Menneker, Agent Robert Daniel Menneker. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Before you Hoover boys get too excited, I'll have you know I protected your witness and pleased all the wives, but my gun never went off. Wait, wait. You mean to tell me you never came even once? Raylan, this may be the first time you've ever exercised trigger discipline. (laughs) (laughs) My duty as a U.S. Marshal has been fulfilled, but Agent Smith, your plans to turn Harlan County into an FBI state to entrap the mentally ill and unstable and train them to be domestic terrorists... (laughs) It's going to have to wait till the next election, at least, because according to Kentucky wife law, none of these swaps counted. But someone must have busted. (laughs) (laughs) I had a CI take care of that for me. Enter Dewey Crow. (laughs) Raylan, I I did like you said and put my gravy where you said. Can I go home now? (laughs) So... You mean to tell me that Dewey Crow is now the single largest landowner in the state of Kentucky? Hot damn, this is the best day of my life! I'm building a gazebo! (laughs) That was justified a Kentucky squat, but before we go... we 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 gotta let our boy Walton have the last word tonight. Let's cue it up. Raylan... Uh, you know, as a pastor, I respect the bonds of holy matrimony, but as a man, the institution's got more leaks than a wooden submarine. <laughs> I certain forward-thinking men like your pappy and mine figured out a way for everyone to win, excepting for certain members of federal law enforcement like yourself. Now, see, I've dealt with these wife-fuckers before. <laughs> and let me tell you, for the rich man, it's not about what you have. It's about what you give away. The Walton Goggins. That was Kentucky Swap. All right, before you go, before you go, Amber, can we bring our boy, boy Boris out here? All right, that's a real showstopper right now. Let's bring him out. The real wind Duffy. <laughs> yes. There he is. Look Boris. at him. Boris. Hey, buddy. Yeah. Look how sweet he is. Basement East, oh Nashville. You guys have been awesome tonight. Thank you, Terrence and Tom, for the Trill Billies for hanging out with us tonight. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, Atlanta, Georgia. Before we close out the show tonight, I hope you won't mind if I get a little personal for a second. And, you know, there is nothing more personal than the circumstances surrounding one's birth. Now... Uh, long time listener to the show, you, you may know this already, but like I said, this is only my second time in the city of Atlanta. The first time was 38 years ago when I was born. <laughs> Would you believe it? I am Southern by the grace of God. <laughs> but, but a Yankee by every relevant life experience that happened after that. In fact, I've also, in fact, I'm announcing here tonight, Will Menneker has been a 38-year-long sociological study by Harvard University to test the limits of nature versus nurture. No, 
uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, I, was, I was adopted at birth, and Atlanta was my birth city. I know absolutely nothing about my biological parents or if there are any uh, biological relatives out there. So I was hoping you could uh, help me with this tonight. If you check under your seat, uh, everyone should have a Q-tip and a small plastic beaker. <laughs> now, I want you to swab your mouth of this. Okay, what's that? Okay, I'm hearing now that the venue did not go along with that. So, <laughs> in lieu of a Q-tip, could everyone just spit in a cup or give me a handful of your hair at the end of the show tonight? We'll be signing posters, so just please provide me with some DNA. I'll put it all in the Chapo Vitamix, stir it up, <laughs> and we'll, fi we'll figure out if any of you guys are my biological relatives. Well, there, there, is, there is a biological phenomenon where the true mother of a child will always be able to breastfeed her son. And if you, if you were one of the 12 women in the audience... <laughs> so, yeah, this is, this, is, this is something of a homecoming for me tonight. And I, I thought I would close out the show tonight by uh, reading a letter that I've composed to my uh, biological mother and biological parents. And, you know, it's, it's like, I, it's your job tonight to uh, pass along this message to any women you may know who gave a kid up for adoption in August of 1983, or anyone of around my age or around your age who like looks like me, you know, funny, talented, handsome, things like that. Giant head. <laughs> you're, really, you're really narrowing it down here in the, uh, the Georgia area. All right, so this is, this is, this is, this is my letter to my uh, biological parents. Dear biological parents, all I know about the discreet phenomena of my birth was that it took place in Atlanta, Georgia in August of 1983. That's it. I never looked further into it. I have no idea who you are or the specific circumstances that led to me being alive. Though I can probably guess. I'm not sure how other adopted kids feel about this, but I've never lifted a finger to make any effort to find out. This is partly out of fear, but mostly out of laziness. And rather than hire a private detective, I figured I would use the opportunity provided by my fairly successful podcast to reach out to you across these years and check in on how you've been doing. And also to let you know what's up with me. And also I'm getting to a certain age where I'm starting to wonder if I will need a kidney or bone marrow at some point. <laughs> so let's start this process now. I've been to the airport before, but let's be honest, that doesn't count. The fact is, this is the first time I've been back to the city of my birth. Here is the scene of the crime, and I'm returning to interview the witnesses. The truth is that being born in America in the latter half of the 20th century is like hitting the Powerball Lotto jackpot of being alive. <laughs> and I managed to achieve that, and then doubled down by winning a second lottery for lottery winners. Sometimes I feel so lucky, I worry I'm going to come down with Lou Gehrig's disease or something new and rare that they name after me. It sort of feels like people shouldn't be able to escape their fate that easily, but here's the truth of it. I've had a great life, and you are the one who made it all possible. Your identity and my heritage are not things that I've ever obsessed about throughout my life. I hope you won't take it as an insult, but I know who my parents are. They are the parents who raised me from birth. But I do admit to an ambient curiosity. If I had been raised in a Dickensian workhouse instead of the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I might have more issues about this topic or be just a little bit bitter. However, now that I'm back in town all these years later, I want to thank you. And by you, I mostly mean the woman in this equation, but hey, also most likely the teenage asshole who knocked you up. <laughs> but it was you, the woman who gave birth to me, who deserves my thanks and admiration. 
because you made the most important decision that anyone has ever made on my behalf. You were the one who made the choice to give me the best life possible, one in which I can now return a conquering hero to the city I was born in. But more than anything, I want to thank you for things that my parent parents can claim absolutely no credit for, the things that really count. Namely, the fact that I'm pushing 40 and my hairline will just not quit. I also have oh, great... Oh, big deal. <laughs> I also have great teeth and have never had a cavity. And I've also been repeatedly assured I have a normal-sized penis. <laughs> so, to you, the woman who made it all possible, I want to say thank you. And to the audience, please pass along this message to anyone who it may be relevant to. Atlanta, Georgia, it's good to be home. We are Chapo Trap House. Good night, everybody. Please stick around. We'll be signing posters a little bit later. Just give us five minutes. We're going out with a protest anthem for our times. Atlanta, Georgia, Buckhead Theater. Ain't nobody going to tell me how to live. Let's fucking do it. Ain't nobody going to tell me how to live. Five minutes, we'll be out front. Signing posters, selling posters, coming out.